welcome you into our hearts. Pray that you would forgive us of our sins, Lord. This can't go through a week. We can't go through a day, Lord. We would be honest and see your holiness. We would realize we can't go through a minute without sinning, falling short of your glory. So we praise you. We welcome you in to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to take that guilt and that burden of sin, that bondage to our besetting habits, and Lord, to liberate us and free us, to shed blood, the finished work of Jesus Christ. I pray that right now we'll just lay aside, lay aside all of that, bringing it to your feet, laying it at your feet, then taking by faith, Lord, righteousness, goodness, and the love that you have for us through Christ. And Lord, you will open our hearts, open our minds, that this truly will be an hour of discovery where we learn more about you, more about ourselves. Lord, we'll come see that Jesus is bigger, better, more delightful than anything else tempts us away. So we say these things name and ask these power of Christ. Hope you're excited about good things. Turn your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 11. And uh, as we do that, I just want to uh, say again that back there, there's materials on uh, Judaism, witnessing to Jews. And just again, as we leave Romans 11 here today, that you will uh, be reminded that we are to have a heart for God's people. I'm just amazed that every week there's somebody that comes up and says something about uh, whether it's a, a Jewish person they know or a, a Muslim person, and just the tensions and the the just there is opportunity out there to apply these things if we have a heart for the people around us. Well, here's what I want to start out with uh, tell you about. I want to tell you about my senior trip that I took in high school with my best friend Kenneth and I. But it really wasn't our senior trip. It was our junior trip before our senior year because we figured, hey, everybody's going to be out there doing these things after their senior year. We're going to graduate. Who knows where we'll be, what we'll be doing. Let's do this now. And so I remember right there in the library at Oak Park, we went over and uh, there was a big atlas laid out there. And in those days, it was an atlas. You know, you couldn't Google. You didn't MapQuest walked over to the atlas, we opened a map of the United States, and we literally just took our finger and just said, okay, here's where we're going to go. Well, where is that? And we lifted our finger up off the atlas, and there was Grand Teton National Park. Had no idea what that was, but that's where we were going. So off we went, and we took a Greyhound Trailways bus all the way from Kansas City uh, to uh, Jackson Hole to Grand Teton National Park. I remember getting on that bus and thinking, you know, just being scared to death. I mean, because it sounded like a great adventure until you get on the bus and you see mom standing out there at the trailways. And you're on a bus anyway. I have a whole journal of people on that bus. I, there, there's a whole story and sermon just in the bus ride. But as we're, we're waving away, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're, we're going to go off into the, you know, the wild blue country without uh, mom and dad. I had never done anything like that. And I don't think Kenneth had done that as well. As our moms are waving later, when we got back, we found out that uh, uh, they were talking uh, after the bus had pulled off. And, and uh, Ken's mom said, yeah, I, I was going to say no to this, but I, 
But I, you know, I figured you'd say yes. And my mom looks at her and says, oh, really? I was going to say no to this. But I figured you would say yes. So they were both kind of like, oh, okay, off they go. But so we went. And uh, it was just a great adventure. It, it truly was an adventure. But the highlight of that week was we went to a place called Jenny Lake. Jenny Lake, probably one of the most beautiful places you have ever seen. It's surrounded by uh, just the, the evergreens and just the beauty. And it's just one of the most beautiful places on the earth. You can hike around that lake, but then there's a trail that goes up a canyon called Cascade Canyon. And it's called Cascade Canyon because there's simply these beautiful cascades coming down. And as you as you hike your way up, and and uh, Kenneth and I were all into Lord of the Rings, so we we're like having the we were hobbits, you know, and dwarves and moving up, and it was just so cool. And uh, so we're going up there, and truly, these cascades they look like you know how silver or gold veins in rock or or in jewelry because there was just cascade after cascade as we moved up and up and hiked higher and higher and. And the, the end of the trailhead was a place called Lake Solitude. And we were determined to get up there. Now, because we were dependent on a ride back, we had to get up this mountain and back six miles by a certain time where we would be stranded out there within our little high school minds thought we would never get back. You know, you're just stranded for life. And, and so we, we get up finally to Lake Solitude. Now, when you get up to Lake Solitude, there's a whole canyon or, or a ridge of mountains that surrounds it and truly it is lake solitude uh you're it's in the middle of summer early june uh there's foot of snow all around you so everything is in snow but we're up there so you're but you're burning up hot so it's the most amazing experience to be getting a sunburn uh in those days wearing muscle shirts you know that, that was in those days and uh, up there in the sun with the snow, and there was other hikers around Lake Solitude. I mean, it was gorgeous. Oh, we got to get back, you know, and then we just like ran, you know, it was just barely making it, and we get back. So, beautiful experience, wonderful experience. So, when we get married, I, I, I told Gwen, this is where I want to take you on our honeymoon. I, you're, you're now my best friend. I did this with my other best friend. I'm anticipating this to be better with you. And so, you know, let's let's go and do this. And so, of course, we've got to hike the six miles up to Lake Solitude. And so, again, it was early June and uh, off we went. And so as we're going up, I'm just reliving the past experience 20 years earlier. And uh, and, and now with my wife and just thinking, well, I was never, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't having to provide and protect for Kenneth. This is a little different, you know, feeling here as we're out in the wilderness. And it seems like no one's around us this time. And what a just a different feeling. And so we're trying to get up there. But this particular early June, there were more. There was more snow. There had been a heavier winter. And so there was more snow. And we were encountering snow far earlier than what we had uh, previously uh, decades before. And, and so we're going along. And pretty soon it's kind of getting cloudy. And this this sense of... This is really a different feeling this time. And what are we what are we doing? And and Gwen's just really clueless as to why we're going up this place. And so we're we're going through the snow and and we're just not getting there. And and and, and the trail is and, and now we're just in total snow and and we're just really following some footprints and and I'm just not I just I wow, I, I don't even know if the lake maybe the lake's covered. Maybe we're on the lake. I don't know where we are. What do we what are we doing? And, and Gwen's beginning to express reservations about turning back. And, and uh, finally, we see, some, by this time, we're all alone. I mean, we're just up there alone. 
And I'm just thinking, okay, what are we going to do if we get stranded this time? And, and so finally we saw some people, and they were like trying to rig something up in a tree or something. And I, I just hollered. I said, where's the trail? Because, I mean, we had even lost their footprints. And, and they didn't answer, where's the trail? And finally they, this guy looks up, and, and just faintly I hear him holler back, there is no trail. And I'm just like, well, we are like following these people who are doing wilderness camping. And he's putting his his uh, food up in the tree. They're going to spend the night up there. And they got like heavy parkas on and all that. And I'm like, okay, I think it's time for us to go back. And Gwen goes, yes, yeah. And she's, in fact, she was already leaving as I was having the discussion. So that was one of my great mountaintop experiences. Another one. Uh, that was early on when I came here at Glenwood, and Jeff, maybe you remember this. Remember me in the Rockies, me and you and Bill Bowman, and we were in the Colorado Rockies for a Promise Keepers event, and for, there was some high peak that was there. It wasn't Pikes Peak, but it was some high mountain, and, and uh, Jeff being the uh, the uh, buff and fit, fit person that he used to be, I mean, that he is, uh, said, uh, you know, he went running up this, this to the top of this this pinnacle of this high mountain and and i foolishly followed after him and ran as well and and bill wisely paced himself and and so as we get back there the air is thin and and we're a little dizzy but we got to the top of this this mountain and and i don't even know where it was or but all of a sudden i was just overwhelmed with this feeling of being at the footstool of god almighty it was like in that moment, it was like God just kind of revealed that, you know, I am so much higher than this majesty that you are around. I'm so much great. It was just like we had entered, somehow entered his presence. You remember that, Jeff? And we all three had this experience, and I cannot explain it. And it was so overwhelming, and it was such a moment, a God moment, that we just said, guys, we need to pray. And there on that mountain, Bill and Jeff and I, we just prayed. And I'll, I'll just never forget that. I, I, I don't really understand it. I, I don't know what took place. But it was a time of worshiping him. In fact, we shouldn't be surprised. In Psalms 8.1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 56, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. This God who created the greatness of the universe will one day judge every sinner and we will stand before him and give an account of our lives. Romans 1.19, here in the beginning of Romans, Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them and he's shown it to us for his invisible attributes. Namely, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they and we are without excuse. We experienced that verse that day for the invisible attributes of God were evident on the top of that mountain. Now, I share with you my mountaintop experiences because... That's what we've been doing in our study of Romans 9 through 11. We have been scaling to the top of the mountain of God's majestic mission of mercy. And we have now reached the summit 
of that mystery. We're now at the top and we've made base camps along the way. And, and if you have been hiking with us through these weeks, you know that the first base camp that we, we, we set down at was Camp Divine Sovereignty in Romans 9. And in Romans 9, we answered four questions. Has God's promises failed to Israel because so many have rejected him? And, we, and Paul answered that and said, no, no, by no means has God's promises failed because not all of Israel is true Israel. And those whom I have chosen will be saved. I chose Isaac, not Ishmael. I chose Jacob, not Esau. And so that brought up the question, well, is God really fair? Has God been unfair to choose some and not others? And the answer was, by no means. God is free to have mercy on whom he chooses, and he is free to have compassion on whom he chooses. All that he does is for the glory of his name. And so the question became, why does God still find fault? If, if he's that sovereign, then why does he still hold me accountable for our sins? And, and the answer was, was direct, and it was clear. Who are you, O oh man, to question God? Who are you? We are the clay. He is the potter and he can make out of the lump of fallen humanity. He can make vessels of wrath, destined to wrath. And he can choose some in his mercy to be vessels of mercy. All to reveal the glorious nature of his character, which is both just and merciful. And so we then brought to the question, well, is there no room for faith? And he said, no, there is, there is. This is why the Gentiles are being saved, because they're putting their faith in this awesome, sovereign, merciful God. And this is why Israel is being rejected, because in their hardness of heart, they're turning away and they're rejecting the gracious gift of their Savior. Well, that was pretty tough to hear, but we moved on to base camp human responsibility in our ascent of God's majestic mercy. And we made it to Romans 10, and the air is noticeable thinner here. And some, to be quite honest, maybe not physically, maybe even physically, turned back and said, I can't handle this. I can't make it up here. It's too hard up here. The air is too thin, but we saw human responsibility in Romans 10, and, and we answered two questions. How did pagan Gentiles receive what was promised to jo chosen Israel? And we saw that they received it in the simple, simplicity of simply believing in their heart that God had raised Christ from the dead, and they confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Well, why didn't Israel get that? Israel didn't get that because it was too easy. They didn't get it because it was too simple. They wanted to work hard for their righteousness. They wanted to earn it. And they were too zealous in trying to earn their salvation to step back and receive what Christ had already done. It was simply do versus done. The nation of Israel tried to do it. And they failed miserably. The Gentiles who weren't seeking God, who didn't care about God's law, who were not wanting to live righteously, they received it because they put their faith in what Christ has done. So how did zealous Israel miss out? They missed out not because they didn't hear the gospel. Oh, they heard it. Not because they didn't understand the gospel. Oh, they understood it. They missed out because they rejected the gospel in the hardness 
of unbelief. And God gave them over justly to a hardness of heart. He took away their eyes. He blinded their eyes so they could not see. He, he deafened their ears so that they could not hear. And he entrapped and hardened their choice so that they would reject. But in that rejection, salvation was offered to all people, including us. And so being the determined individuals that you are, you stuck it out to base camp, glorious humility. And we made it to Romans 11. And there we saw that God's rejection of Israel is not total and it, was not, it is not final. We saw that Paul said, no way has God rejected all the nation forever. Because I am proof. Here I am. He saved me, the worst of sinners. And it's not final because one day Christ is going to come and he's going to save the entire nation at that time. They will turn and see the one whom they rejected, the one whom they pierced coming in the clouds. And we, his church, are going to be with him and they're going to repent and they're going to receive Christ and all of Israel will be saved. You see, we learned in Romans 11, God does not reject his elect. So we should not neglect those that God has not rejected. We should humble ourselves before God because he has even hardened his people that he might save us. We should be hopeful for Israel because that hardening is not forever. And so look in your Bibles to Romans 11, 25 through 28. This is the glorious humility that we should have. Romans 11, 25 through 28, you see the, the mystery. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, phase one, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, phase two. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, phase three of the mystery. And then look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So is there no hope for Israel's hard heart? Is there no hope for someone you know who has a hard heart? No, there is hope, and it's in verses 29 through 32. Let's, here's the new material. Notice what it says. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, that was the time up until uh, God, all the way through the Old Testament, where the Gentiles were rebelling and refusing to believe. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. We have received the mercy of salvation because Israel has rejected Christ and the gospel has gone out to all people. So they, too, now have been disobedient. Right now, Israel is rejecting Christ. Why? In order, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. That is, as God shows mercy to us now and they are disobedient one day, they are going to receive mercy just as we have received mercy. And look at verse 32. For God has consigned or committed or bound or imprisoned. God has imprisoned all Jew and Gentile to disobedience that he may have mercy 
on all. Do you see in your notes, there's this parallel. God is working in Israel and the Gentiles in this manner to where you're disobedient. The Gentiles, you've been disobedient. Now, when Israel became disobedient, you got mercy. Now that you've got mercy and Israel's disobedient, one day they're going to get mercy. And you say, what's the purpose of all this? Everything in Romans 9 through 11 has come down to this one verse, 11.32. What has God been doing? That how, that, that God has imprisoned, He has shut up, he has, he has put into an inescapable net all to disobedience, to unbelief, to rejection of Christ, that he may have mercy on both Jew and Gentile alike by his grace. It's un- amazing. He, he has put everybody in spiritual lockdown. He has put us in spiritual lockdown because we have rejected him. We are born sinners. We have chosen to be sinners. And he said, you are in prison, but I put you under lock and key that I may set you free by my grace. Christ. And that when you're set free, you won't say, look what I have done. But you will say, look at what he has done. I was imprisoned. I was in bondage. I was blind. I didn't know what what Christ was. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what he had done. I was just running headlong into judgment, screwing up my life, ruining my life. And God intervened with the gospel, someone cared enough to share the gospel and the key and the prison was set free. The key was turned so that there's no boasting. Jews will not boast that they were law keepers and pagans cannot boast that we were law breakers. You see, it doesn't matter who you are. God has set us free by his mercy. Now, there, there's a whole lesson there, but who can figure all this out? Are you have you been saying that for a while? Who can figure all this out? See, some didn't make it to the summit. Some haven't made the trip with us. And the reason they haven't made the trip is because they wanted to figure it out by their reasoning. You can't figure this out. You can't get this down into a simple little illustration. You can't get this down into a one minute sound bite. Who can figure this out? The answer is in verses 33 through 36. And you know the answer. Who can figure this out? Who? Only God can. Only God can. And so here we are. We're at the summit. You see, God himself must reveal it and God himself must do it. So what's at the summit of God's majestic mission of mercy? Why have we made it this far? It's not Lake Solitude that we're going to see. It's Romans 11, 33 through 36. Notice what it says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen.
Now, what is at the top of the summit? What I just read to you is a doxology. A doxology, D-O-X-O-L-O-G-Y. A doxology. And you say, what is a doxology? Well, the definition is there in your notes. It's, it's simply giving glory to God. Doxus is the word for glory in Greek. Ology comes from logos, which means word. It's a word of glory. Doxology, just like theology is from theos, God, logos, word. It's a word about God. Theology is a word about God, and doxology is a word about glory. And here's the reality, that theology should always lead to doxology. A study of God is, in fact, always a study of glory. What we have been doing for Romans 9 through 11, for 28 weeks, is we have been studying the glory of God. If you know more about God, then you should give God more glory in your life. Theology should always result in doxology. Notice what it says here. Glory is what God deserves in the light of what he does. It's his actions. Glory is what God deserves for what he does. We see his actions, and then we say, we delight in giving him what he deserves. Now, are you with me? That's what I I learned this this week. We were at a conference, and John Piper said, here's what a doxology is. My ears picked up because I knew we were going to study this doxology. And he said, here's what a doxology is. It's a statement of what God has done, and then you ascribe to those actions the character of, and the attributes that drove that action. So if you see God and you say, God created the sun, that's an action. And then you say, wow, God is powerful because he created the sun. That's doxology. You, you, you say, what would, what, what would a, a person have to be in order to make the sun? He'd be powerful. He'd be wonderful. You ever seen a sunset? Who could make such a thing? What glory that is. What skill. What creativity. That's doxology. Well, I immediately thought of this passage, and I thought, okay, uh, great that John Piper says this. Let's see if it's biblical. Well, I'm in verses 33 through 36, and I'm like, I don't see God's actions. I just see attributes. His, his, his wisdom, his, his knowledge, his, his glory. I'm like, we're, I don't see this two-part thing. And then, then, it, then it dawned on me. The actions of what he's done is Romans 9 through 11. See, the actions that we are to ascribe glory and, and, and attributes to is 9 through 11. It's the mystery of him saving Israel and saving us and in imprisoning us all to our sins so that he could set us free by his mercy. In fact, the actions are Romans 1 through 11. And what should we say to someone who can accomplish Romans 1 through 11? We should say, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. What we see in verses 33 through 36 is a song. You see, doxology is putting into words, putting into song, putting into our life the glory that's due God in light of who he is. And we delight to sing that song. Someone said theology is to sing like a hymn, not read like a telephone book. So how should we respond? How should we respond to the mystery 
of God's majestic mission of mercy. As I look at these verses, 33 through 36, you almost don't even want to touch them. You almost don't even want to analyze them. How do you analyze something so beautiful, so glorious, so wonderful as God? How do you improve on what is laid out there? Well, I hope I don't do damage to it, and I hope I help you see it better by saying that we should respond like Paul did. And I say he responded in three ways. First of all, in verse 33, he responded by saying, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know how we write OMG? And you know how we hear on TV and you hear at work people saying, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And they know nothing of the glory. No, I'm not saying it that way. I'm saying, Oh, my God is how we should respond. We should respond to this and say, Oh, my God. My God is awesome. That's what I see in verse 33. In verses 34 through 35, I see the second response, and it's this. Oh, my God, who am I? Oh, my God, who am I? He's awesome. I'm not. He's great. I'm not. He's glorious. I'm not. And then the third response I see is, give him all the glory. Give him all the glory in verse 36. So can we, can we, can we say that together? What's, what's our first response to what God has shown us in the study of God's majestic mercy? It's, oh, my God. Say it again. Oh, my God. And then we see him for who he is, and we think about who we are in light of what he's done for us. And what do we say? Who am I? Say it with me. Who am I? And then when we put those two things together, there's only one thing to say. Give him the glory. Say it again. Give him the glory. So let's look at it. In, the, in verse 33, we see exclamations that need no further proof. The proof has been offered in Romans 9 through 11. So he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. The main idea is in that word depth. Depth means depth. It means deep. It means like the depths of the sea. It means it's deep. It's dark. It's mysterious. And no one can ever penetrate its ultimate depth. It's unfathomable. Hard to say, but a good word nonetheless. Fathoms. It's how you measure depths of the sea. This is unfathomable. This is immeasurable. Paul is simply saying here what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And when I say the depths, don't just think going down, think also of going up. Remember in Ephesians 3 where Paul says that he wanted the Ephesians to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of God's love. That's, so when we're talking unfathomable, we're not just talking about going deep. We're talking about so high we can't reach, so wide we can't see. It's immeasurable. It's unfathomable. Now, what is unfathomable? At least three things. And I'll add a fourth. You see them there. Riches, knowledge, and wisdom. Let's look at the first. Oh, the mercy of God's riches. 
are unfathomable. What we should come away in Romans 9 through 11 is we should come away just going, God's mercy, the riches of God's mercy are so great. I just have to say, oh, that's unfathomable. Paul's already written of the riches of God's mercy several times in the book of Romans. In Romans 2, 4, he says this, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is so rich in long-suffering to rebels like us. In Romans 9, 22 through 23, he says, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. In Romans 10, 12 and 13, He says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in Romans eleven twelve, every chapter, every chapter, every chapter, there's riches. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more for their full inclusion? You see, God, in all three chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11, mentions the riches of God's merciful salvation. whether they're self-righteous or unrighteous, whether they try to be law keepers or they're outright law breakers, the riches of His mercy, the likes of us, is unfathomable. I wish I had time to take you through Ephesians 1.5 where he talks about according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Or Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, where he says that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may he give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 6, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, seated with us, seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3, 8 and 10, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities. What about Ephesians three sixteen and 9 through 19? That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And, and He goes on to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of His love. Or Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. One more, Colossians 2.2, That their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach 
all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I read those because Romans 9 through 11 is not this odd section of Scripture that once we can get through this series, I can put on a shelf and never have to worry about the sovereignty of God, the greatness of His mercy, or the mystery that's blowing my mind. It's all in Scripture. This is what God is doing. Those passages I just read talk about wisdom. They talk about knowledge. They talk about richness of mercy. It's just a theme. And when we read those passages, we ought to say, Oh, my God, the riches of your mercy are unfathomable. And that leads us to the second exclamation, and it's this. Oh, the mission of God's wisdom is unfathomable. It's not, the, it's not just the riches of His mercy, but it's the wisdom of His mission in unfolding this to us. Now, God is, Paul has much to say about wisdom and foolishness in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, here's what he says about us in our sin. For although they knew God... They did not honor God as God or give thanks to Him, but because of the, but they became futile in their thinking, knowledge, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God, the knowledge about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, there's much more that we could say, but say, why do you say God's wisdom has to do with His mission? Well, I have a, three points there that that's just extra goodies for you. It's because God's wisdom is hidden in Christ. It's because God's wisdom in His sovereign outworking of His mission to save sinners was displayed on the cross. And it's because God's wisdom is unfolded in His sovereign purpose to save His elect people from all nations. My point is this. Wisdom is the working out of God's salvation plan. God's mission to save people is wise beyond our comprehension. Let me say it this way. Maybe it's more understandable. God's wisdom plans salvation, but it's God's mercy that bestows. The point is this. The mission of God has unfolded through history, and it's the mercy of God that it pours out onto sinners like you and Oh, the wisdom of God's mission of mercy. And that leads us to exclamation number three, and it's this. Oh, the majesty of God's knowledge is unfathomable. The mercy of His riches, the mission of His wisdom, the majesty of His knowledge is unfathomable. Now, notice what he says there in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches. Okay, that's the mercy. And the wisdom. Okay, that's his mission to save sinners. 
with that mercy and the knowledge of God. Ultimately, our salvation we've seen in Romans 8. We've seen it in Romans 9. We've seen it in Romans 11. Ultimately, our salvation is rooted in God's foreknowledge. He knew us before the foundation of the world. He chose to love us and he chose to save some of us, though we were undeserving. It was unconditional. He chose to save us, and he did it according to his infinite omniscience, his great knowledge. He chose you. He chose to know you personally and to love you personally when you were imprisoned in your sin. Wow. This is God's sovereign knowledge of all things. Oh, the majesty of God's knowledge fathom. That leads me to a fourth exclamation, and it's found in the last part of verse 33, and it's this. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Oh, the mystery of God's judgments. Oh, the mystery of God's judgment. You see, when you start putting this together, and you say, wow, God's mercy is rich. God's wisdom is missional in seeking to save sinners that don't deserve to be saved. And then you see it's, it's all encompassed in God's majestic knowledge. You step back and go, that's a mystery that is unsearchable. And those are ways that are untraceable. Now, what are God's judgments? They're simply his saving purposes in Christ. They are a mystery that only God can reveal to us in His Word and through His Spirit. They are God's... It's it's whatever the heck God is doing in this planet to save sinners, and I can't figure it out. We'll never know what He's up to unless He tells us. We'll never fully understand what He's up to with just our reasoning. We have to submit our reasoning to His divine revelation. So you've got to enter into Romans 9 through 11 saying, I'm not going to figure this out. He has figured it out. He is revealing it, and I will submit myself to what he He is the potter. I am the He is sovereign mercy. I am unrelenting failure. I think I better just admit it's unsuitable. But then his ways, how he works this out in history, first choosing Abraham and the Jews, then rejecting them, and then accepting the Gentiles. But then, after the last Gentile saved, turning back to Israel. Who can trace this out? How how do you follow this pattern? It's untraceable. It's untraceable. Now, let me say three things very quickly. First of all, don't go postmodern on me. Don't You know what postmodern says? No one can know anything, so believe whatever you want. When you read verse 33, and he says that God's wisdom and knowledge and and mercy is unfathomable, his divine purpose in salvation is unsearchable, and his divine mission to save sinners is untraceable, that doesn't mean that we have no hope of knowing God. What that means is we have no hope of knowing God with our own wisdom according to our own reason and fitting him into our own box and understand. Someone once asked me, what's the greatest privilege you have in salvation? Or what's the greatest thing that God gave you when you got saved? And 
And for, it's, it's different for everybody, but for me, it's this book. Because suddenly, my questions, you know, I could make sense of life. I could understand why I was the way I was, why people were the way they were, why, why I had these struggles, why I had these great desires that, that went unfulfilled. Suddenly, life made sense. Why? Because I got it figured out? No, because he revealed it to me. So don't go postmodern. We, we will never understand why God does this, but we can begin, if we'll submit to him, to understand the unsearchable. And another warning here is this. Don't go pro- pragmatic on this. See, many don't reach the summit of Romans 9 through 11 because they can't get past these base camps because they're like, well, I can't figure this out, so I'm going to go do what I know I can do. See, this is too great for me. I I can't reconcile divine sovereignty, human responsibility, so I'm going to just push it over here, and I'm going to do what I can really understand, what I can do, what I can understand. Do you see the problem with that? Listen, we will never fully understand how God does this. But, like Paul, we can find our place in God's plan and we can begin to fulfill our part in the fulfillment of God's saving plan. We can begin to follow the untraceable. That's what I want you to see. This isn't saying you can't figure it out, so give up or believe whatever you want. And he's not saying you can't figure this out. So don't try, set it aside and just do what you can do. He's saying, look, you can begin to understand the unsearchable and you can begin to follow the untraceable if, if you will let God's word and God's spirit show it to you. And in humble submission, put God's word and revelation over your reasoning and say, your will be done. Your will be done. And so what do we want to be here? Here's what we want to be. We want to be like Paul. Paul wasn't postmodern. Paul wasn't a pragmatist. Paul was simply surrendered to the majestic mission of God's mercy. And here's what Paul did. He studied, prayed, and he lived out the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. Listen, if our response is truly, oh, my God, oh, my God, then you know what we ought to leave here today doing? We should leave here doing what Paul did. It should burden us and break our hearts for the lost. Romans 9, 1 through 3. It should burden us and break our hearts for the lost because of the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. It should result in us praying more for the salvation of the lost, even those who are most hardened in their sin, like Paul did in Romans 10. It ought to it ought burden us to pray more than we have ever prayed. And it ought to cause us to boldly present ourselves and our testimonies as proof that God is still in the business of saving sinners and changing hearts, like Paul did in Romans 11. As, see, as he moved through this, he says, wow, this is unsearchable. This is untraceable. Uh, it's unfathomable. And you know what he says? I want to be a part of it. Not only that, but I get to be because of God's glorious sovereign grace in my life. And so here's what he says. I'm heartbroken for those that aren't a part of this. I'm praying for their salvation because it's ultimately of God. 
but I present myself as proof that God is greater than my sin. I present my testimony to you to say God is on a mission of mercy and He can unlock you from the bondage of your sin because He unlocked me. And I want you, and He wants you, to be set free and be a part of this glorious, mysterious, mysterious, majestic mission of mercy where we just step back and go, Oh, my God, how great Thou art. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're so high up that we can't see down. We're at the summit of your mysterious purposes for saving sinners. And we're awed and we're humbled and we're weighing over our heads. But we say with Paul, we give you glory. We give you glory. Oh my God, how great thou art. Lord, may we not get over this. May we learn more of you so we can give more glory to you. We praise this. We pray this in Jesus' name, to whom is all the glory forever and ever. Amen.